A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. My name is Patrick Fine. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of FHI 360. And I'm here today with Jerry Eckhart Keenan, one of the preeminent voices on development effectiveness and on management efficiency in the development community. Jerry Eckhart Keenan is a partner at the Bridgespan Group. Uh, before joining Bridgespan, she has a diverse career working in both the private, the public, and now the nonprofit sector, advising mission-driven leaders and organizations. Jerry, we're very pleased to have you with us. Do you see any emerging trends with respect to how organizations are organizing themselves and managing their programs in order to deliver the most effective results? Thank you, Patrick, and I'm delighted to be here. I think we're, we're living through some seismic shifts in these days. So, of course, we're all aware that the bilateral aid funding is flat to declining, and we all expect that it will stay that way. And that has caused quite a few of the international nonprofit NGOs to be thinking about what their funding models are and what their operating models are. Mm -hmm. And by operating model, I mean what is it that we do and how do we do it? And so for a very long time, many of us were in the business of executing projects that someone else funded us to do. And now organizations are asking themselves, is there additional value that I can add? Can we be a platform for scale, scaling what works across a broad global network? Can we be local capacity builders? Can we play a role as knowledge creators and knowledge providers? International NGOs that have been around for 50 years have a treasure trove of experience and expertise on what works and what's already been tried that didn't work. And the world needs those organizations to mine that knowledge and share it. I think there are also seismic shifts in the demographics and in the geopolitical context. So it used to be 25 years ago that most of the poor people were in poor countries. Now 70% 70, 70 of those in extreme poverty are in middle-income countries. We also know that a tremendous amount of wealth is being created in those countries. And so we have emerging philanthropists coming forward in places like India and China and Brazil and Africa that are really changing the landscape of philanthropy as well as the landscape of need. And those two forces coming together is actually quite exciting, I see. You know, by 2050, there will be as many billionaires in India plus China as there are in the United States. I think that's an untapped area, at least with respect to how we in the U.S. have looked at financing development. One of the issues that I struggle with has to do with uh, ensuring that we are adding uh, value in a cost-effective manner. And there's a perception that I often encounter 
about the private sector being simply more efficient and more cost-effective than the nonprofit sector is. Have you, do you think it's possible to compare the nonprofit sector, nonprofit organizations with for-profit organizations in terms of their efficiency or cost-effectiveness in achieving a set result? It's possible. It's quite difficult. We don't have the data in the nonprofit sector that we would all like to have about the outcomes we achieve and the cost of achieving those outcomes. And that's what we would need to do those comparisons um, easily. In 2012-2013, I published an article called Stop Starving Scale, where we actually went to great lengths to compare uh, the financial costs and the IT cost and some of the other indirect costs of nonprofits with like-sized corporations. Mm -hmm. And we found some interesting things. For example, we found that NGOs had higher, 80% higher financial management expenses but IT costs about half of their for-profit counterparts. It's very difficult for nonprofits to invest in the kind of capital systems that our for-profit colleagues take for granted. My belief is that in the nonprofit sector, we have been trying to do as much as possible with as little as possible for a very long time. It's been a mantra, do more with less. It's not working. I mean, what we see is that nonprofits are systematically and chronically under-reimbursed for the full cost of the work they do. And as a result, they are systematically and chronically unable to invest in the kinds of systems, leadership training, professional development, etc., that we all know is the hallmark of an outstanding organization. We do the best we can, but I believe that it's our system of financing nonprofits that's broken and that needs to be fixed. Yeah, I worry about that too. Mm -hmm. As we adopt new innovations, uh, new technologies that allow for more effective ways of collecting information and analyzing information, uh, new ways of reaching unserved or underserved populations with a whole variety of, of services. The, the true costs of doing that are not recognized. I don't think we know how to price them. I don't think the funders know how to price yeah. them. And because we don't have good pricing models, those costs don't get recognized. Mm -hmm. And I, I suspect that's one of the reasons why the development community is behind in the application of, of new technologies. We don't have any way to finance the kind of work required to take those products and adapt them to be fit for purpose. I, I think that is so right. In the corporate world, we have a concept called segmentation that we take for granted. And we understand that organizations uh, in different segments have different cost structures and mm -hmm. therefore different pricing models. So for example, a software developer might have indirect cost of 70% of revenues. A pharma company has indirect cost of 45% of revenues. And we understand that the cost structure reflects the business they're in, what they do, and how they do it. We don't have that in the nonprofit sector. Well, we do actually have it. We just don't recognize it in our costing and pricing systems. 
So Britspan has just done some work that shows that nonprofit biomedical research facilities have indirect costs that are 65% of their direct cost. International NGOs have indirect costs that may be 35, 40, 45% of their direct costs. Those are indirect costs that drive value, that are essential for impact, that are required for innovation. And we need to move to a system of financing nonprofits that reflects that. And that says, yes, FHI 360 is an organization that should be investing in technology that is an indirect cost, and we're going to recognize that. Why is it so difficult to see change in the way that, particularly that funders look at how they manage their financing? I think there are a couple reasons. One is a lot of people don't understand that True indirect costs vary by type of business or organization. Legitimately, it's not a reflection of inefficiency at all. It's a reflection of the nature of the work that's being done. There is a myth that overhead is a proxy for efficiency. Many people believe that, and they believe that overhead or indirect costs should be minimized. So we have a belief problem we have to change. Uh, Second... Even people who, under, who would agree with you and me that indirect costs are greater than 15% and they do vary, would say, well, I could pay full cost, but it won't solve the problem. The problem is bigger than me. Government has to be part of it. That's the second problem. Third, well, let me just yeah, add, from yeah. an international perspective, um, in addition to government, um, multilateral organizations like the UN, it puts um, a 12% cap on the indirect costs that it will cover. Um, Organizations like the Global Fund, which is a big financer in the health sector, uh, has a 7% cap on indirect costs that it will finance. And then you have uh, philanthropies that are market makers, um, like the Gates Foundation, which I think many in the philanthropic world look to as a leader in best practices, as an organization to emulate. And they have a a ceiling on indirect costs of 15%. So sometimes there's an explicit Mm -hmm. uh, expectation of cost sharing. Or just a denial of the true cost of, of providing the services. So... Again, it, I, I come up against the question of why is there a lack of uh, um, acceptance of the true cost of those activities? Let me ask you a, a question in return. Do you th- feel that those funders have good data on what the real costs are? I do. I think that um, organizations like ours are, are, and, and many of our peer organizations are completely transparent with our financial statements. If a funder wants to look at whatever level of detail of our, of our financials, we'll provide it to them. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it's a data mm-hmm. uh, problem. I think that there is a legitimate concern about cost reasonableness. But 
When I look at established organizations in the development community, both in the U.S., in social service provision and international development, I see a very strong commitment, serious commitment, to the stewardship of the resources from funders. So that's part of the reason that I'm perplexed by the fact that we see the development of, of our organizations requiring greater investment in things like research, in iteration of activities, in new technologies, in systemic approaches that by their very nature are shared services or, or shared investments in um, an organization's ability to add value, to deliver value, um, and to increase the value proposition to the funder. And yet on the supply side, so from the financial supply side, I haven't seen the response to these conditions that you have a trusted relationship with. I share your desire for a new system and I am hopeful that we are at the cusp of something new with some funders contemplating change. Having said that, I do see at least three reasons why it's hard. Uh, One is a lot of people do not understand the truth of cost structures. They believe that 15% ought to be enough. I think that's just wrong, but that is a belief. And as you know, many nonprofits put out their pie chart on their their website that says our overhead is less than 8% or something like that, which just reinforces that ill-conceived notion. Can I just add something here before you get to two and three? Yes. That notion, that sense that 15% is a reasonable indirect cost rate without reference to types of activities or market segments is one of the reasons why I asked you earlier, is it possible to compare efficiency between the nonprofit and the for-profit sector? I, maybe I put outsized confidence in benchmarking, but I just wonder if we could do some Mm. benchmarking Mm. to commercial um, Mm. organizations that people accept as being well-governed, well-managed, you know, taking their shareholders' interests into account and maximizing value for their shareholders and you you can you show that hey it's their overhead rate is forty percent, and then you show a nonprofit that is also working at scale, working diversified across many countries, has a workforce of thousands of people, is working in dozens of legal environments, has the same kinds of pressures and demands that a large global enterprise yeah. faces. And make the case that if you want the nonprofit organization to be as efficient as the for-profit one, then you should expect it to be investing in the systems that that bring that efficiency yes. at the same rate yes. as the yes. commercial sector. Yes, um, I love this idea. I think you are right that if we had true indirect cost by segment of nonprofit. So nonprofit biomedical research facilities, for mm-hmm. example, we could find a comparable in the for-profit world 
pharma R&D. Right. And then say, so what, what's their indirect cost and how does that compare to the nonprofits? And I think what my hypothesis is that what we will find is a lot of commonality. We'll see that actually most nonprofit biomedical research facilities are between indirect cost rate between 65 and 85 percent. And guess what? It's not that different than their for-profit pharma colleagues because it has to do with the cost of facilities and the cost of the people and the nature of the data systems and the equipment. We should be doing those comparisons by type of organization and the kind of work that they're doing, not by size or, well, we often do by size, right? Right, right. Uh, but, um, it's probably by both because there's going to be a big difference in terms of the sorts of systems mm. needed mm. for mm. an organization that's managing 100 people and yep. working in yep. one locality yeah. versus one that's managing 40, right across yep. uh, 50 countries. Yes, yes. Um, but it also is by segment. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like you say, if mm-hmm. if you're working in research, there's there's special costs. You have to pay attention to the uh, safety of uh, human subjects if you're if you're doing research that involves human subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got a whole different additional set of shared costs that you have to uh, take into account. Yeah. Now you had two other points. Yeah. So the second one is that if we put ourselves in the shoes of a funder particularly a funder who has a large portfolio with many grantees or many social service organizations that they might fund as a government entity. You can imagine that there's tremendous variation in the true indirect cost of those grantees. Mm -hmm. So a flat rate policy was a rule that was intended to simplify things. Mm -hmm. It turns out that it's wrong. Uh, it's very wrong, so it leads to poor resource allocation. But there's no simple substitute. If I'm a very large foundation and I'm funding advocacy organizations and global networks mm-hmm. and research facilities and charter schools and any number of other kinds of organizations, I now have a challenge. And my program officers and my grants managers really have a challenge. They're not necessarily organizational experts. So this is where I think your approach of benchmarking becomes very powerful. Are there some guidelines, some benchmarks that we could use that would be much closer to the true indirect cost than a flat rate like 10%, 15%, 20%. But we don't have that today. So that's the second Uh barrier. Uh, And then the third is the lack of knowledge of all the people who are involved in the process. And so very often in foundations and government agencies, you have individuals who are there because of their subject matter expertise. They're experts in education. They're experts in public health. They're not experts in organizational effectiveness Mm. and indirect costs and financing, financing, et cetera. And so this this becomes difficult. Right. There's belief issues, there's a practice and policy issue, and then there's just practices and tools and um, trainings that we, that we need to solve this problem. Well, it, it strikes me as we think about the role that international organizations have to play, uh, that um, part of the 
global agenda ought to be how do we advance thinking on these issues of how to finance activities in a way that assures cost reasonableness so you get value for money, but at the same time allows organizations to build the sorts of systems that will enable them to to really deliver a strong value proposition Absolutely. to the communities that they're serving and to the funders whose who's funding they're, they're using. So when we think about the innovation agenda, it's almost exclusively focused on technical innovation and, and method, methodological mm-hmm. innovation. So how do we reach communities with new financial products? How do we reach communities with new access to health care? How do we expand the quality of education? It would be really great if we could get a consensus uh, amongst the international development community to include in that agenda a component that looks at organizational effectiveness of the organizations that are carrying out that work. And what you're articulating so powerfully is that in the international development community, we really need to invest in new technologies and in innovation, new ways of reaching people and solving problems. That is a core capability for an international development organization. And so we need to recognize that cost and we need to make right investments. We're actually... Uh, fortunate um, because we have uh, our own foundation and the foundation was capitalized by um, two for-profit organizations that uh, FHI 360 established. They grew um, to, they started both as nonprofits, then they grew so large that that we hived them off as for-profit organizations and then eventually sold them and used the funding to capitalize a foundation that supports us and provides us um, a little funding, not not very much, but a little funding uh, that gives us some leeway to experiment, uh, to do research, to invest in systems. But that... um, There are very few organizations that have uh, that kind of flow of unrestricted funds available. I think, you know, I, I see three ways that organizations, nonprofit organizations, are really able to drive and fund innovation. One is, as you referred to, to um, have projects that enable them to move into new frontiers. Right, and, and I they're think that's funded the to do that. Prime. prime uh, Second is to uh, build the strength of their own balance sheet so that they have unrestricted capital that they can invest as mm-hmm. they choose. And that's very difficult to do. Super but hard. strong balance sheets, resilient funding is, is hugely powerful right. because you can self-direct it. Uh, and then the third is that there is the... I would say emergence, the glimmer of some funders who are really thinking very differently about capacity. And the Ford Foundation is one that I would mention where they've announced a billion dollar 
uh, investment in capacity building of critical nonprofit organizations. So this is not necessarily in the international development mm-hmm. space, but it's an example of a large foundation that has said, we recognize the importance of strengthening institutions. We recognize that these nonprofit institutions will exist long after our strategy. We need them to end extreme poverty, to reduce inequality, to end injustice. And we can have impact by helping them be strong. And that means investing in their core capacities. That means making sure that they have resilient balance sheets. Uh, that makes means making sure that their full costs are reimbursed, their right. true costs are reimbursed. And that's a very progressive point of view uh, that I've heard a few funders start to articulate. Not too long ago, I was on a panel with another um, leader of a nonprofit who started his presentation by saying, our goal is to work ourselves out of a job. And if you provide us with some support now, then in a few years, we won't be needed anymore. We'll have, we'll have done our job and we'll have worked ourselves out of business. I hear that from many people. Once it's fixed, it's fixed, and there's no further need for, for an organization to fix it. It's, uh, in my view, just a complete misunderstanding of the nature of reality or the, the way the world works. As the world changes, human development challenges become more complex, often more sophisticated, and as human society evolves, so do the challenges of human development. So the notion that our work is short-term work and that um, if we were really competent, if we were really able, then we wouldn't need to exist five years from now is a misguided thought. But it, I think it is a thought that, that does inform um, many decision-makers. I agree with you that this is a long game, that society's biggest problems have been with us for a very long time and will remain with us for a very long time. For me, this is what argues for the um, necessary vitality and health of the international NGOs, these global networks. We need global institutions to solve global problems. As Kofi Annan talks about uh, problems without passports, you know, we, we need more large global networks. And we've invested so much over 50 years in the creation of this infrastructure that is an enormous asset for humanity. The knowledge that's resident in your staff all around the world, uh, the ability to scale when we design a program that works in early literacy or maternal mm-hmm. and child health, you can scale it across a network. It would take decades to recreate that. So this is a huge asset for society, and we need to continually invest in their vitality and their health. It's imperative. I think that um, as the world becomes more interconnected, the ability of of nations to work together becomes more and more important and more and more um, critical to 
both economic prosperity and to security. What a rich discussion we've had. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives on these issues. Well, thank you, Patrick. It's been a pleasure.